over the maybe the last couple of months, th there has been a uh, continued refrain that comes into my mind and, and pops up in my preaching once in a while. And it, it, it goes something like this. Proclaim the gospel, speak truth, and love people. You've heard me say that before? Sometimes when you proclaim the gospel, you all the time when you proclaim the gospel, you have to speak the truth. And that sometimes in loving people, when you speak the truth, what we recognize is that the truth hurts, right? All right, well, I want you to know from the very beginning of this sermon, I love you enough to tell you the truth. <laughs> I say that a little bit uh, laughingly, but I also say that with all of my heart. I love you enough to tell you the truth, so I preach the gospel. And the gospel starts by saying that we are sinners. It just does. And, and I'm sorry for that because I don't particularly like that, and I'm pretty sure that most of us don't particularly like that. But truth sometimes hurts, and only in knowing truth can we actually receive the healing that we so desperately need. So we begin with the notion that we are sinners. Lent is a season of truth-telling. We said together this morning the Ten Commandments, and as we walk through the Ten Commandments, I don't know about you all, but if you say them with honesty, I certainly realize just how bad and messed up I am. Maybe I'm the only one. But Lent is the season leading up to Easter, the season of repentance and preparation in which we tell ourselves the truth. We are sinners. We need to turn away from our sin. And in telling ourselves the truth and hearing the truth told, we also then are told the equal truth, the glorious truth, that Jesus is the Savior we need. Sin isn't something that we like to talk about. Sin, uh, probably because of sin, is something that we try to avoid, that we try to justify, that we try to explain away, that we try to say, oh, it's just a minor mistake. It's just a sort of temporary peccadillo of character. God doesn't really take it all that seriously. The world tells us that. And what's frightening to me is that there is and has been creeping into Christian theology that very same thing. That sin isn't that big of a deal. God won't hold people accountable to their actions. In 1908, British author G.K. Chesterton published his classic work called Orthodoxy. And in it, he wrote, Certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved. If it be true, as it certainly is, that a man can feel exquisite happiness in skinning a cat then the religious philosopher can only draw one of two deductions. He must either deny the existence of God, as all atheists do, or he must deny the present union between God and man, as all Christians do. See, sin is a reality, and there's a gap, a gulf between God and man because of sin. And because of sin, the gap is itself judgment, and because of sin, there will be a moment of judgment in the future. There is an incredibly popular book that was published a number of years ago. They've now made a movie. You know what I'm talking about. And I have to address it. I know that it's fiction. 
But anytime you try, even if you're writing fiction, you claim to speak truth from the mouth of God, you better be in accordance with the word of God, which is scripture. In the shack, the author puts this into the mouth of his God character. I don't need to punish people for sin. Sin is its own punishment devouring you from the inside. It's not my purpose to punishment. It's my joy to cure it. Now, absolutely, that's true. Jesus' atonement uh, and God's joy in the atonement is accomplished in the Son. But the Scripture tells us that the Father is the only holy and righteous judge. And if God does not, will not judge sin, then he needs to apologize to Adam and Eve, and he needs to apologize to Jesus. Did I say that too quickly, or are you with me on that? The fact is that we are sinners. Jonathan Edwards was a, 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 a pastor in New England a number of years ago, 400 years ago. His most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The reality of judgment, the reality of sin, the depth of sin necessarily must drive us to the reality of Jesus, the glory of the cross and the resurrection, because only there is life. So we don't want to wail and, and we don't want to revel in our sin. We don't want to beat ourselves and, and think of how nasty and horrible a sinner I am. All of those things are true, but all of those things can be made untrue because of Jesus and in Jesus. That's Lent. So when Chesterton here uses the phrase original sin, when Christian theologians use this phrase, it's in reference to a fundamental way of being, the basic condition of us humans. It's a reference to fa the fallen condition in which we are born. You find it uh, mentioned by King David in Psalm 51, the psalm that we said together on Ash Wednesday. After receiving our ashes, we knelt and said together, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We are natural-born sinners. It's embedded in our DNA. But where did it come from? How should we consider it? And what is to be done to fix it? Well, to answer these questions, we, we begin by turning to our Old Testament reading for this morning from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. I'm not going to bore you with all of the details of this uh, unboring account but after God has completed his work of creation, he has placed Adam into the garden and he has said to man in verse 15 of chapter 2, well, let me say it this way, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it, to see that it, thrish, that, that it thrives and flourishes and to keep it, to guard and protect it. There in the garden doing his work, God says about Adam, about the man, it is not good that he should be alone. So he creates woman. God officiates. He stands over. He celebrates the first marriage, the first covenant of marriage man and woman enter into. Things are great. It is a garden paradise. Must have been in northwest Florida. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Remember what has just occurred. 
Adam and Eve, man and woman, were placed in the garden, given the privilege and the duty to watch over, to keep the garden. They were given a super abundance of trees and plants from which to eat. God restricted them to eat not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent comes and he says, did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the, in the garden? As this narrative unfolds, serpent, clearly the mouthpiece of God's enemy, Satan, casts doubt upon God's word and God's goodness. Serpent subtly implies and then directly states that God was holding back on Adam and Eve, that there was more for them to have as humans, that God was keeping something from them. He essentially accuses God of limiting their potential as humans. He more than implies that God at some level feared a rival, that God was hoarding his godness and his glory and like a spoiled child refused to share. Notice what serpent says in verse 5. God knows that when you eat of, your, eat of it, the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Seize the fruit, Eve. Take it for yourself, Adam. Grab that which God does not allow. Assert your independence. Be self-determinating. Become God. Declare good and evil for yourself. And she did. And they did. And sin entered into God's creation, and with it came corruption and death. While manifested and expressed in innumerable ways, in innumerable deeds and actions and omissions, sin is fundamentally the assertion of independence from God. Whether we call it pride or insubordination, Adam's sin, and thus uh, what is at the heart of the corrupted human nature is a grasping to be like God, to name good and evil, free from God's constraint. It's a declaration of independence that leads to disobedience. And could it be that Adam and Eve sinned even before they ate of the fruit because the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise before the first bite she had already determined in her mind that she was free of God's constraints? And having bitten of the fruit, notice with me in verse 6, she turned and she gave some of it to her husband who was with her and he ate. I can teach you a whole sermon about Adam's failure to stand there and watch serpent and Eve. The grasping to be like God, the grasping for freedom from God, the desire to be self-determining, to be a free moral agent, that's insubordination. And it's at the very uh, core of what it means to have original sin. It is built into the DNA of all of our humanity. And as if we still need help in seeking free moral agency, it is in the fallen world systems in which we live. Renaissance philosopher Pico della Mirandola said, You who are confined by no limits shall determine for yourself your own nature. You shall fashion yourself in whatever form you prefer. Not too different than what 20th century author Ayn Rand wrote, Man's destiny is to be a self-made soul. 
which isn't far off from William Ernest Hindley's famous poem, Invictus, with its closing stanza, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. And that's not too far from its modern equivalent of, I identify myself as. And that's not itself very different than any one of us declaring, I do this because I want to, and I have called it good. All of these are echoes of the words from the serpent's tongue. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Original sin, the natural state of humanity, is fundamentally insubordination, the refusal of God's authority, and the assertion of the self. That is what causes the capacity for evil in its myriad forms, which Robert Simon, a psychologist at the Georgetown University School of Medicine, says is universal. If we are then conceived in sin, like King David has said, And if the wages of sin are death, which is punishment and judgment, as St. Paul in Romans says. And if this original sin is the only bit of Christian theology that can really be proved, as G.K. Chesterton says with his tongue firmly in cheek, how can it be fixed? How can we be changed, not just in our actions or our deeds, but in our very being? The reality is that we humans need a new being. We need a new way to be. We humans need a righteousness that is not our own. We humans need someone to kill the serpent, someone to deal with the sin that is in us and the sins that we commit. We need Jesus. A New Testament reading that's appointed for today, the first Sunday of Lent, that we didn't read this morning, I'll read part of it to you now, is found in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. There, St. Paul writes, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You see, what we need is another one's righteousness. We've received another one's sin. It's become our own. And before we say that it's not fair, that it works that way, let me assure you that you and I would have done no different had we been in the garden. As it becomes clear through reading the Scriptures... Jesus is the righteousness for those who believe. It matters what we do with Jesus. It matters who we say Jesus is because Jesus alone is the one who is righteous and can change us from the inside out. Back to the shack just for a minute. I apologize. At one point in the story, the father figure, God the father figure, uh, her name is Papa, and I said her name, she chides Mac that he is now reconciled to the whole world. Mac's the main human character. He retorts, the whole world? You mean those who believe in you, right? 
Papa responds, the whole world, Mac. The implication is quite clear. What you do with Jesus and that theology doesn't matter because it's universal salvation. That goes against what Scripture says. That goes against what Paul writes. That goes against what Jesus himself says in John chapter 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The reality is only Jesus can save because only Jesus has the righteousness that is necessary to cleanse us of our sins that he will freely give to us by grace through faith. So it matters what we say about Jesus. This giving of his righteousness is referred to as imputation. And it means that by God's grace and through faith, God declares, God counts, God reckons sinful sinners to be righteous. On account of Jesus, those who believe in him are freed from the penalty of sin and they are made new, given a new way of being human. We humans born in sin to sin need a righteousness that is not our own. And by Jesus, and Jesus, by grace, through faith, gives his to us. Think about that glorious statement just for a moment. I cannot fix the problems that I have. I have plenty of my own righteousness, and it ain't that great. I say that about myself, and I can say that about every one of us sitting in here. We need a righteousness, not our own. We humans, born in sin to sin, need a righteousness that is not our own, and Jesus by grace through faith, gives his to us. We need someone to kill the serpent. We need someone to deal with our sin and our sins. And Jesus did it and Jesus does it. Jesus undoes what Adam did. He brings a new way of being human for those who believe, a way that is free from the penalty and the power of sin. Jesus died upon the cross. He was raised from the dead so that sinners might be forgiven. And in his life, Jesus lived a righteous life of active obedience. And in both these aspects of obedience, the passive death upon the cross and the active righteousness of living, in obedience, Jesus kills the serpent. Let's go back to Genesis for just a moment. To Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. After, after sin has entered into the world and God has is confronted Adam and Eve with their sin, with their declaration of independence from him. Uh, God pronounces judgment upon all three of the parties that are involved in the event. He judges serpent, he judges woman, he judges man, and he says directly to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Notice what God promises here. So very soon after the fall of man, after the entrance of sin, God promises that sin will be taken care of. And not just sin and the consequences of sin, but the very aspect of sin itself. He promises that the serpent will be killed. The serpent is going to receive a killing blow to the head. And while he will strike back and will wound the killer, it is the serpent whose head will be crushed. So as we look at Matthew chapter 4, as we look at the temptation of Jesus, 
Let us keep Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the crushing of serpent's head. And let us keep Romans chapter 5, the righteousness that comes by the one man through obedience. Let's make those our framework. And we see in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, Adam and Eve's action of of eating the fruit of the tree stemmed from their declaration of independence from God. That assertion of self-will led to disobedience. What needs to be undone, so to speak, then, is the action of disobedience and the assertion of independence from God. Notice what Jesus does in every one of his temptations throughout the entirety of this event. Jesus does what Israel could not do in the wilderness wanderings during the Exodus. Jesus does what Adam and Eve did not do in the garden. Jesus resisted the devil. Jesus asserted not his independence from God, but Jesus asserted his dependence upon God, and in that he obeyed. As Satan, no longer disguised as a serpent, comes to tempt Jesus, he does so in very much the same way he approached Eve. Satan seeks first to question, get Jesus to question God's word, to question God's goodness, to declare his independence from God. If I may paraphrase, if you really are God's son, would he leave you here in the wilderness to starve to death? If you really are God's son, Would he lead you towards suffering and rejection and death? If you really are God's son, would he give you the kingdoms and glory only after you've walked the path to crucifixion, suffered a painful death, crossed to the other side, and then back again? Declare your independence, Jesus. Be your own man. Use your divine power as you want. Has God really said, what's God holding back on you, Jesus? You're the son. Make bread. Seize the kingdoms, jump. And at every turn and at every whispered temptation, Jesus resisted the devil. He remained dependent upon God. And in this event, he crushes the head of the serpent. The last Adam, Jesus, did for us what the first Adam and all his descendants since could not and never do. Jesus undoes what Adam did. He brings a new way of being human for those who believe, a way that is free from the penalty and power of sin. Jesus died upon the cross and was raised from the dead so that sinners might be forgiven. And in his life, Jesus lived a righteous life of active obedience. And in both these aspects of obedience, the active and the passive, Jesus kills the serpent for us. Lent is the season leading up to Easter. Lent is the season of repentance and preparation. And while there are different strands that run throughout Lent, they all weave together to form a single thread, a single theme, our need to turn away from sin and turn toward Jesus. It's Jesus who is the serpent killer. It is Jesus who undoes what Adam did. It is Jesus who brings a new way of being human. For those who believe, it is Jesus who brings a new way that is free from the penalty and power of sin. And where does that leave us for today? We're coming face to face with sin. 
coming face to face with our own personal and particular declarations of independence from God, coming face to face with temptations to declare independence from him, we come face to face with just how much we need Jesus and the new life he gives. Sometimes the truth hurts. We are sinners. Sometimes the truth is glorious and frees us. Jesus saves. We need Jesus to be forgiven, to be saved from this just penalty of our sinful nature and sinful deeds. I don't really care what culture uh, tells us. I don't. I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not one for banning books or burning books. I am for Christian discernment in all things. So let us be bound by what Scripture has to say about sin and forgiveness and not what the world says. We need Jesus to be forgiven. We need Jesus to save us from our sinful nature and our sinful deeds. But we also need Jesus so that we can live as he would have us live, in a new human nature freed from the power of sin. When faced with temptations, we need Jesus to resist. The gospel is not self-help. The gospel is God-help. We cannot live our best lives now apart from Jesus. So I don't really care what culture has to say about being strong enough or good enough. I need Jesus' righteousness. We need Jesus because Jesus is the one who kills the serpent. We need Jesus because Jesus is the one who undoes what Adam did. Jesus is the one who brings a new way of being human for those who believe. Jesus is the one that brings a way of life that is free from the penalty and the power of sin. We need Jesus because that's the gospel. And I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.